We um, are continuing in Acts 17 today. If you were able to be with us last week at the, the Davises uh, or online, you'll know that we, we looked at the, the first half of Paul's visit to Athens. Today we're going to look specifically at the, at the last half of that chapter, the last ten verses. And here Paul proclaims the unknown God. Previously, we looked at how he related, what, what kind of, of posture he took in that city. But now he's going to say something explicit and direct about who this God he worships truly is. And it, it will distinguish between, you know, some things that may be uh, on offer in the city and, and something that is true and authentic. Unfortunately, not everything in our world comes as advertised. See if I can get my clicker to work here. Right? Sometimes the, the distance between what we are hoping to receive and what's actually delivered to us is pretty substantial. One of the places that this is, is becoming a more common experience, I think, for many of us is shopping online. Right? Virtual shopping, you're, you're clicking on an image on a screen, and you're not always sure what's going to show up at your doorstep. In the past year, the Wall Street Journal did an extensive investigation of Amazon products. And they alone were able to identify several thousand products that were, were bogus, that were fake in some way, but, but available for purchase on the website. Things like fake car seats are concerning to us, right? We want our children to be safe. Or numerous foods that contained either fake ingredients or ingredients that were deemed hazardous by uh, the FDA, but were available for purchase. So there are, there are these sort of dangerous things available on the site, but then there are just the products that aren't exactly what we were expecting. Back in April, when everyone in our country was trying to locate a reliable source of toilet paper, one of Katie's cousins uh, went on to Amazon and, and was hoping to find a third-party seller who could deliver some quickly, right? And on the left, you can see in the image the product they ordered, what was displayed on the site. Ten rolls of four-ply toilet paper. On the right is the product as it actually appeared on their doorstep. Notice it's next to the, the sofa. So that you can see these rolls of toilet paper were about the right size for a dollhouse, not for a human being or a, a family of their size. I asked them what they did with the toilet paper. They said they used it. It just went a lot faster than they had hoped. All right, they, that would be an expensive habit to keep spending 14 bucks on toilet paper like that. So the next day, they, they posted these photos to Facebook, partly to to sort of laugh at themselves, laugh at their own folly, but also partly to kind of warn other people from being duped by these, these sort of bogus products uh, on the marketplace. In the same way that, that appearances or, or advertisements or, or things that are offered to us aren't always what they seem, last week we looked at Paul's arrival in Athens and his first weeks or months in that city. 
and how he entered a place that, that was a veritable marketplace of religious ideas and gods. The text says that Athens was a city filled, sort of swarmed, smothered in idols. And we, we thought about how Paul took the time to listen to, to notice how this city worked, to think about the questions they were asking, to pay attention to the desires that were leading them to, to worship in this way. But as he did that, Paul also embodied Jesus and the gospel that he came there to proclaim, right, in this great marketplace of ideas and worship. And the message that Paul embodied eventually earned him an appointment before the Areopagus, right, the, the highest ranking sort of council within the city. And they were curious about what they, they labeled Paul's strange ideas and his foreign gods. And so there in the Areopagus, Paul stands up and he, he chooses to seize upon this opportunity to, to sort of remove that veil between what is being advertised, what is being worshipped, what is being proclaimed in this plethora of religious spaces. What's there and what Paul says is, is actually the case. What is the identity of the true and living God? You'll remember that Paul pointed to an altar in the city ascribed to an unknown God. And Paul says, today I want to proclaim to you this unknown God. I want to, to give him a proper introduction. My prayer is that as we hear Paul's sermon or his address in Athens, that we might also allow his message to address us, right, and to address the idols in our own lives and of our own making, the distortions we may bring to the worship of the true and living God. My hope is that we might be able to worship our God, as Jesus says, in spirit and in truth. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I am grateful, we are grateful for the gift of revelation. You have gifted us this word, gifted us the canon of scripture, you've gifted us the word made flesh, Jesus. May we be humble enough for our hearts to hear and receive this word today. May the words of my mouth as I preach, Lord, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing. May they grow in conformity to the true image you have revealed of yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is Acts 17. We're picking up in verse 24. Remember, this is Paul saying, let me proclaim to you now the unknown God. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. Moreover, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole of the earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. In these first six verses, Paul's focus is is to proclaim what God is actually like. I think this is one of the most fascinating speeches in the book of Acts. It is by far the most studied and researched by scholars. If you look in the commentaries, the This sermon alone gets, you know, 30 pages in most commentaries or 15 pages. Because Paul, I think, is doing two really difficult but really important things in this message. And I'm sure Paul's actual sermon was was lengthier. This may be sort of a precy, a, a summary account of what Paul went on to elaborate and proclaim there before the Areopagus. But in this address... First of all, Paul is seeking points of connection with his audience. Like we said last week, Paul goes to great efforts to utilize every sort of cultural inroad and insight in Athens. And he's he's building bridges even in this proclamation of the unknown God. It's important that the unknown God he's going to proclaim is actually intelligible to the people he wants to proclaim God to. Right? They have to have a reference point. And so Paul points to the architecture of the city. Paul uses the philosophy of the city. He uses their mythology, even their poetry, in order to, to frame a context for the gospel of Jesus. But even as Paul is building that bridge and doing that work of, of contextualization, Paul throughout these verses is also pushing back against the the impaired vision, the constrained vision of idolatry. And he's trying to kind of open up space for a, a true and more accurate, illuminating vision of who God, in fact, is. And so while paganism can, can sort of point to and, and indicate all of these deep desires the human being has for, for the eternal, while paganism can, can reveal, right, that the... Paul says this audience, he notices, is very religious. The people of Athens are very religious. But for all of their religiosity, he says, they have yet to to find and to know the true God who has made all things. Just like the people of Athens, we can't think our way into an understanding of God. We can't reason our way there entirely. Instead, we are dependent creatures, right? Dependent on God, not only for our life and our being, but also for revelation itself. For the special and perfect and embodied revelation of God 
comes in the person of Jesus Christ. That revelation is something we need as desperately as the people of Athens do here. So we need to ask ourselves, well, how is God different than advertised? How is God other than we may be tempted to understand him? And the first and and most important claim Paul makes here begins in verse 24. Where he, he points to the fact that the unknown God is not something that is made. It is not fashioned. God is not dependent on human hands, Paul says. God is not made, but is in fact the ultimate maker of all things. And so he says in verse 24 that this God created the heavens. This God created the earth. He created all the things that fill the heavens and the earth. And so we, we don't need to go looking in the temples of Athens to find him. It was common practice if you were to introduce a foreign deity in a place like Athens, you would then also need to construct the appropriate temple and and develop the the whole sort of religious rites that accompanied that God. That need to be defended before the elders of the city. Paul says this God doesn't need a temple, for he is the maker of all things. Now, in our contemporary moment, we're, we're less familiar with the idea of of constructing, you know, physical statues or idols to worship. But I think our idolatry takes other forms. We we routinely construct rules in our religious communities. We routinely construct boundaries or unspoken expectations about who we wish God to be, what we wish God to be like, what we would like God to do for us. We like our gods tame. And the great theologian and pastor John Stott says this. He defined idolatry in this way. He says, idolatry, whether we're in Athens or whether we're here in Jericho, Vermont, is anything that reverses the respective positions between God and us. Idolatry happens when we presume to imagine that we can create And we can rule over God. And that desire of the human heart to be in control, even to fashion God in our image rather than to be fashioned in his, right? It it perverts the nature of our worship, right? It turns worship into a battleground for control with God. That happens anytime we bring kind of an external lens, an external set of ideas and say, I'm committed to this, therefore God must look like this. Instead, Paul says, let me proclaim the freedom of true worship, of worshiping the God who has made everything. Paul says, if we worship a God like that, if we worship a God who cannot be served by human hands, a God who doesn't need us, a God who doesn't depend on our offerings to sustain him, then that God cannot be manipulated either. Instead, because God has made everything, God is free to give us everything. We're free to receive that in worship. 
Paul says, this God who is maker has given life and breath and everything else. The phrase there in Greek is is broad. It just sort of means everything. Everything in our world. God has given these gifts freely to everyone. Pagan, Jew, Gentile, regardless of, of their place and time or status, God has gifted these things. And so worship is a place where we recognize our dependence. Worship is a space where we practice gratitude. Where we delight in a God who freely gives of himself. So if God is the maker and God is not made, then then we have to worship him appropriately. But John Stott goes on to say that most communities, whether ancient communities or postmodern communities, whether pagan communities or Protestant communities, we find ways to localize God. We find ways to confine him in the limits which we would impose. And one of the ways that takes shape is by reserving God's blessing for insiders, right? For a special group of people. God's favor, God's gospel, God's freedom is, is for you, but not for you. And that does not sit well with Paul. Look at verses 26 and 27. He goes on to explain as well how the unknown God cannot be localized because God is in fact limitless. And the way he explains this is by saying that that God has cultivated all people, every nation, from one man. Here he's referring to Adam. And he desires then that, that all nations would reach out and find God, experience relationship, experience revelation with God. Paul's saying that as those who are made in God's image, then we share a a universal ancestry as human beings. Even with those we dislike. Even with those that are different than than us. Even with those who are, are sworn enemies. We are all made in the image of God. And that is, again, a revolutionary idea in Athens. It's a departure from paganism because in paganism every different group, every different city-state, every different nation had its own patron god or goddess. And they were always battling in their myths for for control and, and for the worship of one particular space or people. The people of Athens often retold a legend in which the god Poseidon and the goddess Athena were, were battling for control or worship from the citizens of Athens. And of course, Athena won that battle, and so the namesake of the city became Athens. That myth, though, was used to bolster their sense of superiority over others, over other city-states in in battle, in politics. It was used to to divide them. And again, to assert control and supremacy. But according to Paul's gospel, according to the account of the God he is proclaiming, there is only one God who is the source of all people, all things. Regardless of when or where we live, he says, we share that same divine source. I think it's for this reason that Paul is 
crazy enough to keep going to city after city after city, right? Paul spans most of the known world in his day, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus because he believes that only that gospel can unify humanity. Only that gospel is truly limitless and universal. Only that gospel can transcend national and ethnic divisions and boundaries. Only, only that gospel, he'll say in Ephesians, can tear down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile, between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, between male and female, between the servant class and the elites. Paul believes this. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and so he says, this God is limitless. Let me proclaim this God to you. I think in our current cultural moment, we need this God who is limitless, who brings together that which has been pulled apart. So God is not made, but the maker. God is not limited to one location, but is limitless. Paul goes on finally to say that God is not far off but instead he is a God who is like a father to us. Ironically, to get his point across, he actually quotes two pagan poets. And both of these poems were probably originally directed to the god Zeus. But he's building a case here, I think. Verse 27, he's quoting likely the poet Epimenides from 600 years before Paul's time who said, in, in him, in the God, we live and move and have our being. Right? Epimenides is pointing the, to this idea that, that our dependence on God is, is an intimate one. It's a close one. Everything in us goes back to this God who is our creator. Then in verse 28, Paul quotes the poet Eratus who said, we are God's offspring. And so Paul sort of lines up these two pagan poets so that in verse 29 he can, he can take a next step. He can say, if we are in fact the offspring of God, if we depend upon him for everything, then why would we worship images of silver or stone or gold? Maybe to us he'd say, why would we worship a God fashioned in our image? He is, in fact, the one who has given creation and life and birth to us. Paul borrows these poets, these, these cultural artifacts, I think, not just to make a connection with his audience, but I think he's building to the climax, the, the point of his sermon here. If God doesn't live in temples, if God isn't served by human hands, if God doesn't depend on our offerings, if we can't constrain him to a human set of ideas or images, then how is it that we, in fact, know and worship this God? And the answer to that question begins in verse 30. Proves, though, to be the hardest part of Paul's preaching. In every city, when he comes to this point, things get difficult. Because he says to move from the emptiness of idolatry, to move from the emptiness of a God made in our image, we have to enter into the posture of repentance. Look at verses 30 and 31. In the past, 
God overlooked such ignorance, right? worshiping, worshiping him in all these other ways, idols and such. In the past, he overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Earlier he said from one man, Adam, all were created now by one man, Jesus, all will be judged. He says he has given proof of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. Paul has made his case. Paul's gone to great lengths to understand his audience, to build bridges, to make sure the picture of God he's given is intelligible. But now he moves to the the point in his address that that scholar Ben Witherington identifies as the pathos of his speech. It's the part that's intended to cut to, to the point, cut to the heart. It's intended to provoke a response from us. For Paul, following Jesus just can't be a version of paganism plus. Right? Following Jesus isn't just adding a few or subtracting a few insights from other religions and arriving at the gospel. Right? For Paul, the gospel requires conversion. The gospel is a call to transformation. It needs to transform our hearts and our minds and our wills in order to reflect the God who wants to be known. And he says the way that we step toward God, the way that transformation begins to take place is through the act of repentance. And the word there in in Greek is the, the term metanoia. It means to change one's mind away from from a former belief or idea or reality and toward a new one. It's, it's Paul and other biblical writers' best effort to translate the Hebrew word shuf, which means to, to turn around, to turn away from idolatry, to turn away from rebellion, and to turn and face the living God who wants to be reconciled to us, who wants to reveal himself to us. And so when, when we embody Jesus in our world, when we make every effort to connect with our neighbors, to be winsome, to preach the gospel in a a way that speaks to their deepest longings, ultimately there comes a point where the gospel also asks us and asks those we love to break from those former ways and pivot toward Jesus in repentance. Paul says no human court, not the Areopagus, Not any other intellectual center or authority has final say in this matter. He says, only Jesus, verse 31, the one God has vindicated over death itself, who he has raised from the grave, the one who was crucified out of his love for humanity, only this one will judge what we worship with equity and with justice. And as you and I both know, a call to judgment and to repentance is not easy for us to swallow. Right? It's abrasive. It can feel polarizing. These words of Paul's ask 
for a difficult, hard decision. That's true now. It's true in Athens. And we see the response is divided in verses 32 through 34. Look with me at these last few verses. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. As is the case in most of the cities where Paul proclaims the message of Jesus, right, there is a, a mixed reaction. Some reject the message outright, particularly when it comes to repentance and the mention of resurrection from death. It's just too much for them to take on. Others are intrigued but, but want to and need to hear more. But a few embrace. They, they, they repent and they turn and they become followers of Jesus. And among them here, Luke records two prominent individuals. Dionysius, who may have later become the bishop of the church in this region, and also a woman named Damaris. In many of the cities in which Paul preaches, there are these women who become key members, influential members in founding the house churches in, in Philippi and Corinth, and also here in Athens. Paul moves on at the start of chapter 18. He'll go on to Corinth. But what he leaves behind is not just an intellectual idea. What he leaves behind, I think Luke is telling us, is a living witness, a community, a gospel church and family that will continue to make known the living God. Make known the God of Jesus in Athens. And we have evidence that by the end of the second century, there is a, a vibrant and thriving Christian community in that city. This morning, my prayer is that we would meet the God who desires to reveal himself to us. And we can do that through the proclamation of his word. But we can also do that by receiving the gifts of his body and blood given for us. We come to the Lord's table today. Let me remind you that uh, if you're here in the sanctuary, your elements are either in the, the windows there. You can go and, and take them here in just a moment. Or on the pew in front of you, if you're seated on the inside rows. If you're at home, feel free to uh, gather those elements. And in just a moment, after I extend these uh, words of invitation, then you can bring the, uh, the elements to all those who are gathered with you. Hold them and then wait and we will take them together. But I think about on the road uh, to Emmaus, after Jesus was crucified, dead, but then raised to life, he met with his disciples. And you'll remember as they get to the village where they're headed, it's at the breaking of the bread, it's, it's in the sharing of the cup that Jesus is revealed to them in a new way. And he goes back through all the scriptures, right, and, and points out his presence, his identity, who he truly is in each of those places. My prayer is that as we receive the body of Jesus Christ broken for us, as we receive the blood of Jesus shed for us, that we might know the living God 
in a new way. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God.